Good morning. Wow. If you have a Bible, let's go to Genesis 38. Genesis 38. If you're using a pew Bible, that'll be page 38. It's neat how that worked out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you because you are in this place. We thank you because your presence is among us. Lord, we need your presence. Above all else, we need your presence. So Lord, like Israel of old, would we say, Lord, unless you lead, we, we, won't, we don't wanna go. Unless you move, it's not gonna happen. Unless you speak, we won't hear. So Lord, would you speak this morning? Once again, through your word, would you speak for your servants are listening? Help us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' good and powerful name and everybody said, amen. Well, happy Advent and happy New Year. It is the Christian New Year. For us, uh, New Year starts with Advent, not in January. And maybe you've been reading along with us in our daily devotionals. If you don't have one of those, you can get one on Amazon or the bookstore, or it's free on the app. You can read it or listen to it there. Uh, and if you've been reading and listening this week, you've been hearing some very, uh, uh, you've been hearing a very interesting story, the story of Tamar here in Genesis 38. And this Advent, we are doing a series that we call Pictures of Grace. You see, when you open up to Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, there's this interesting list of women in his genealogy, which is odd in and of itself. Normally, you wouldn't add that in, but they're there. Mary is a Jew, but the four that come before her are not. Bathsheba is a Hittite, Ruth a Moabite, Rahab and Tamar Canaanites. And whenever you read this list, you would think, what an odd list, knowing that. Seems odd that these women, but not just women, Gentile women, would make their way into Jesus's genealogy. We believe that these five women mentioned are five pictures of God's divine grace in our lives. And the names simply being on the page speak to us and speak powerfully to us. And what they tell us and remind us is that all nations matter to this Messiah that's coming. The Jewish Messiah is coming into the world to save the world, but it is truly for the whole world. That's why it is completely incompatible to be a Christian and to hate any other race that's out there. Can I get an amen? amen. Completely incompatible. Because the Messiah that has come, yes, God chose a nation for a reason, for a vocation to bring the Messiah into the world. That was their purpose. And then our purpose as the church is to take the Messiah to the world, but that's to all the world. 
This is what was proclaimed by Simeon when Jesus was presented in the temple in Luke chapter two. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it for you. In Luke two, when Mary and Joseph present Jesus as a baby at the temple, Simeon says, Luke two, 29 and following, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Listen to verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, that's anyone who's not Jewish, and for glory to your people Israel. Right here in the pronouncement at Jesus' presentation in the temple, the, the pronouncement that Simeon declares is that this Messiah is for all nations, and he goes on to have a conversation with Mary and Joseph about that. And so these women mentioned in Jesus' genealogy, while they may look odd, while they may not all be Jewish, once again, God is signaling to us what he's going to do. He's telling us that his redemptive plan is for all people. Today, we come to Tamar. And the lesson we learn from Tamar is that God has this way of working in our life in such a way that he can restore the broken places. God restores. Tamar's story opens up in Genesis chapter 38, as I said. And the first thing that we see is that Tamar marries into a very broken family. We, we, there's brokenness all around. And I don't know if you know this or not. This may be a revelation for you. If so, you really need to hang on to this one. Just as Tamar marries into a broken family, anyone who gets married marries into a broken family. Does that make sense? Is that not true? <laughs> it is very true. It's, you know, I love talking to, you know, especially really, really, really young people when they're, you know, about to get married and we're working on the ceremony and stuff. I just love hearing their ideas about how they think life works. <laughs> I'm like, woo, this is gonna be hard on you, you know? <laughs> No, but it's true. There's this reality that, yes, Tamar marries into a broken family, but the reality is we all do. We all do, because we're all broken people. What we see in verse one is something very interesting. It says that Judah, this will be Tamar's father-in-law father eventually, the story starts with Judah, and it says that he went down from his brothers, verse one says. And I believe that language is very intentional. It's not just describing something geographically. He went down from his brothers. is very important language, pointing to us that he is separating himself, at least for this period, from his brothers, not just physically, but spiritually as well. Something's going on here. Maybe he's feeling guilty about the whole Joseph thing. We, we don't know. But we know that the language suggests to us that there is a separation that's taking place that's not just physical, but it's also spiritual. As he separates himself, verse two tells us that he marries a Canaanite woman. The text says that there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And so we know that they get married. They have three sons. The first son, his name is Ur, the second one is Onan, and the third one is Shelah. Now these three sons, it's what takes place here is very interesting. So Judah gets Ur, his firstborn, a wife. We see this in verses six and seven. It says, and Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, 
and her name was Tamar. But then something happens. Verse seven happens and it says, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord put him to death. First time that's mentioned in scripture. The Lord put him to death. Now we do not have the details of what him being wicked in the sight of the Lord actually was, but the story goes on. Judah makes a choice and he wants Tamar then to be the responsibility of Onan, his second oldest son. His first one is now dead. Onan takes the place as the firstborn or the oldest born at this time. But there's a problem here. Onan does not want Tamar to get pregnant. And so the text describes that in detail. And the problem with that for Onan is that in him not providing her children, he may be thinking that uh, if she has a child, particularly if she has a son, this is going to complicate the inheritance. So Onan does not impregnate her, nor or what he does is prevent that from happening. Then verse 10 says, and what he did, notice this, what he did in doing this, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. So Ur is killed by God, we don't know why, it just says he was wicked. Onan, we know, we know why. So there's a third son, Shelah. Verse 11 tells us that Judah goes to Tamar, and he says to her, Remain a widow in your father's house till she lay, my son grows up, for he feared that he would die. Notice that. Tamar marries into this broken family. Judah has separated himself from his brothers. He marries a Canaanite. He has three sons. As they grow up, he marries Ur to Tamar. Ur dies. He marries Onan to Tamar. Onan dies. He has one son left. You probably know what he's thinking. But think about it from Tamar's perspective. Her father-in-law has separated himself from his family. She had a wicked husband, which she probably saw on full display in some way or another, and the Lord kills him. She has another husband who does something wicked, then the Lord kills him. And now, there's only one son left, but he's being withheld. Tamar at this moment is probably thinking, is it me? Judah thinks so. That's why he does not want his third son to marry her. So Tamar marries into this broken family, but this family, these are the very people that were supposed to protect her. Tamar is rejected by this family, this people. He is rejected by the people that is supposed to provide protection. Instead of Judah taking Tamar into his house, he makes his second son marry her, but then he keeps his third son away, and then he sends her off. He sends her off. Now, verse 14 tells us that in the course of time, Shelah grew up. And one day, Tamar is out, and she sees him. And she realizes that he has grown up, and she realizes that he and her are not married. So think of living with this for a long time. Year after year, living with the loss of two husbands, with the confusion, is it me, with the pain of just going through that. This is years. 
She's living with all of this, thinking, is this really me? She's been sent to live back at her father's house, which was a sign of disgrace. And then she sees that Shele is alive, and then the rejection hits all over again. The story gets even stranger. Now, Judah thinks one day, he sees Tamar, and he thinks that she is um, an immoral person, a prostitute. The very person who is supposed to be protecting her thinks she's a prostitute. Judah wants a good night. She wants dignity and help. She wants Judah to do what he was supposed to do. She wants Judah to keep up his end of the bargain. She wants Judah to be responsible the way that he is called to in his culture to be responsible, especially under the Leveret marriage law, and provide for her. So Judah approaches Tamar. He makes a proposition for the night, and he says, I'll give you a goat. Pretty valuable, a little awkward, but okay. She says, I want your signet, the cord, and your staff. The signet would have been a unique signet, unique to Judah. No one else's would have looked like it. The cord would be what the signet was on, and for her to have the signet and the cord meant that she didn't cut it off of him and therefore steal it. The staff would have also been very, very uh, unique to who Judah was. And these things, as we've even talked about in our devotions, would have been like your driver's license and credit card. Judah would have known what they were and whose they were, and other people would have known as well. So that's what she asked for as a pledge. He agrees and gives them to her. Then Tamar gets pregnant. The story goes on. You can read that. But Judah was the one that was supposed to be responsible for her. Judah is the one that was supposed to provide for her. Judah is the one that was supposed to protect her. Judah was the one that was supposed to see that she prospers to the very best of his ability. And instead of doing that, Tamar has to resort to tricking him to keep his word. So, about three months pass. And in verse 24, the text says, about three months later, Judah was told, doesn't tell us by who, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. <laughs> Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. Don't you love gossips? Now someone has come. Oh, you wouldn't believe what has happened. Judah says, oh, Bring her out and let her be burned. Really? Self-righteous, selfish Judah hears that she is with child and says, let's burn her. She go, he goes to her, says, tell me how this has come about. She says, well, the person who did this, here's his signet in court and here's his staff. And right then, Judah knows it's him. And then Judah makes this proclamation. He says, she is more righteous than I. She is more righteous 
than I. What part of what he's saying in that moment is I was supposed to take care of her. I was supposed to do my duty as the father-in-law, take her into my house and to provide for her and help her prosper. I was supposed to do that. Instead, he tried to get rid of her. That's called neglect. Instead, he used her. That's called abuse. But here's how God works. And here's the restoration. First is that she has twins. One of those twins is Perez. One of those twins is the direct line from David all the way to Jesus. The bloodline is restored. The second part of the restoration is for Tamar herself. Judah saw an immoral woman. Earlier, he saw her as a problem, so he wanted to get rid of her. But what God does, only by his grace, is he adds a double blessing of protection to her. The first layer of protection is that Judah is her kinsman, responsible for her. The second layer of protection is now he's the father of her children, responsible for all of them. We read this story and we go, please don't make this into a movie, right? You can't make most of the Bible into a movie, by the way. But when you read the story and you just think, this is strange. Yeah. Life is messy. The world is broken. But God's grace can work through it all. Even stories like this. Is this a work of God's grace? You better believe it. Is it an Advent story? Absolutely. It is. It sure is. You know, Advent reminds us that God came in his first Advent, the incarnation, that Jesus came to save the world. But Advent also reminds us that he will come again in his second Advent, this time not to save the world. This time he will come in glory. He will come in his glory and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. In God's first advent, in the Messiah coming to this broken world, we read all the broken stories, many of them anyway, many of the broken stories that God used to bring the birth of the Messiah about. At his second advent, in some way it's as if God is using all of our brokenness and our broken stories. And one day, we will see them through the lens of eternity and they'll make a little more sense. But as I was reading this text this week, there are three particular things that just jumped out to me that I wanna remind you of. The first one is simply this. It is that there is no such thing as a perfect family. There is no such thing as a perfect family. All you have to do is look at Jesus's family tree, and if you look at Jesus's earthly family tree, you'll see that it is not clean and spotless at all. Not at all. So many times we try to project an image that everything is perfect, everything is right, everything is as it should be in our families. We have these nice filters and we put things on Facebook, and that's what we want the world to see that everything is okay and in its proper place. And the truth is, it's not. It's not. 
If you have an imperfect family, there's a word for that. It's called normal. If you have a perfect family, there's a word for that. It's called lying. <laughs> and that's the truth. There is no such thing as a perfect family. Jesus' family tree, not made up of perfect people. Not at all, not at all. But even though there's no such thing as a perfect family, I believe what Tamar's story speaks to us is that your family, your family, is broken, but it's not broken beyond repair. Your family is broken, but it's not broken beyond repair. We have this God who can restore the broken pieces and the broken places and the broken people. And again, the proof of that is Jesus' own family tree. The in-laws, the outlaws, the murderers, the thieves, all this are there. They're all there. And many of them, you can read their story. Emily and I, we've witnessed levels of brokenness with our family members. Levels of brokenness we wouldn't wish on our worst enemies. But can I tell you something? When we see those broken places and broken people, in our own families. That's when we need to remind ourselves that, that God is not done yet. Restoration can still happen. God can still move in powerful ways, even in ways where it looks crazy on one side of it, only to get to the flip side of it and see his hand at work. Just like your family, your family's not perfect. You have brokenness in your family, but your family is not broken beyond repair. And while you're going through and living with all of your brokenness, oh, we know we do. We, we clean it off in order to walk in here every Sunday. I get it. I get it. I mean, I mean we, we, we go dust the halo off, don't we? But even though you're walking through all of your brokenness and living with your brokenness, it's still not beyond repair. God can move in powerful ways, and he is still moving in powerful ways. And I may not know what your restoration looks like, but I do know it's possible. I've seen it too many times. I've seen it too many times around me. I've read about it too many times throughout scripture, throughout history. God is in the restoring business. There's no such thing as a perfect family. Your family is not beyond repair, which also means, number three, your life. Your life is not beyond repair. You're not too far gone. You see, the first advent revealed the restoration power of God in Tamar's story. I believe the second advent will reveal again the restoration power of God, even in our stories. And in the meantime, God repairs the brokenness, but we have to remember he's repairing this brokenness, he's healing this brokenness unto a full restoration, a complete restoration. This is why Paul would pen Philippians 1.6, where he says, I am sure of this. No, don't, I hope it happens. No, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion when? At the day of Christ Jesus. You could read that verse this way. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at Jesus's second advent, at his second arrival 
at his second coming. And that is a promise that while we live with all the brokenness around us, while we live with all the brokenness within our own families, they are not too far gone and you are not too far gone because the one who began this good godly work in you will see it through to completion. He is that powerful. He can. He can. And in moments when we think, I can't, congratulations, because you can't. But when you stop and you let him move, you let him work, you let his restorative power do the deep work that only the Holy Spirit can do, that is when true restoration and healing takes place. And that is eternal restoration. That my friends, you will carry with you into heaven. So in Advent, this crazy story about Tamar, it reminds us that nothing is beyond the reach of God. I just feel led to say this. This is not in my notes. It just hit me. Some of you are really struggling with your marriage right now. When my mother was eight years old, eight years old, her parents got a divorce, crushed her life, crushed her. For the next eight years, she wondered where her dad was. When my mom was 16, her parents remarried remarried you may feel like it's too far gone okay but I'm here to tell you God can do things that will blow your mind God can work in ways that you can never imagine we give up way too quick we give up on ourselves we give up on each other but I'm here to tell you God the same God who put my grandparents back together after eight years, by the way, they both married other people. Divorced them, then got remarried. You're talking about a crazy story. And <laughs> yeah, they were from Tennessee. But, uh, <laughs> my apologies to everybody from Tennessee. But God can do those things, my friends. He can work in ways that you wouldn't believe. But don't give up. Don't give up. So I don't know what you're giving up on. I don't know what you're thinking about giving up on. I, I don't know what it is you have no hope for anymore. But I, I'm just here to tell you this morning. This God... Mm. he can bring it back together. So if you just need something brought back together in some way, no matter, maybe you've gone, you know, a family member, a relative, a friend, or somebody, if you just need something brought back together, would you just stand, because I'm going to pray for you, right where you are. If you would bow your heads, I'm not going to watch people stand up. If you just need something brought back together, 
Lord, I come to you right now and I pray for those who are standing. God, I pray your blessings over them. I pray for hope, a fresh wave of confident expectation that you can restore what's broken. Lord, whether they're standing for themselves or they're standing for somebody else this morning, Lord, would you do the deep work, the work we can't do on our own? Lord, forgive us when we fake it. Forgive us when we try to make it perfect or look perfect. But thank you for these moments where we just say, Lord, it's not perfect. I'm an imperfect person, an imperfect family, in an imperfect world. So Lord, would you restore what has been broken? Would you mend what other people think cannot be mended? Would you bring the pieces back together? They seem so small and spread apart, but Lord, you can put them back together because you spoke the world into existence. Would you do that for each and every one of these who are standing right now, Lord? I pray it in Jesus' powerful and mighty name. And everybody said, amen.